Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two completely opposite longtime friends. I'm Carrie, and I bring the practical buzzkill vibe to this partnership. And I'm Amy. I am the upbeat and social one, and I even drug Carrie out to do something fun on Saturday, even though she didn't want to. Each week, we have book nerd conversations with each other and sometimes a special guest. We not only talk about what we're reading, but also book-adjacent topics, such as stuff we've had to Google while reading. New titles on our TBR lists. Film adaptations that we've seen. And bookish news. At the end of our shows, you'll have new books to put on your nightstand and a laugh or two along the way. This week, our guest is Lydia Welker, the Digital Communications Coordinator for the Appalachian Prison Book Project, based in Morgantown, West Virginia. This organization does a lot of things, including sending books to prisoners in six states and hosting book clubs for inmates. I discovered the Appalachian Prison Book Project on social media where they often put out requests for specific books prisoners are looking for. There are over 43 Books to Prisoner programs across the country, and you can find one in your area by going to the Books to Prisoners website, and we'll provide that link in the show notes. Book to Prisoner programs believe education is a basic human right. We talked to Lydia about the most requested books by prisoners, why she is a fanatic for sharks, and the best zombie movie to watch at the holidays. You'll notice that Lydia only answers two questions at the end of the show. She did get the third degree from us, but due to some technical difficulties on our end, the recording of the last Q&A wasn't usable. But first, Carrie, we're recording this on Monday, April 10th, and yesterday was Easter, you did a lot of uh, family eating, it looks like. We did. With my side of the family on Saturday and then my husband's side of the family, although my parents go to that as well, yesterday. So it was a very busy two days, which had the school system planned it better or had churches and religions planned it better. I don't really love for Easter to coincide with spring break because then I'm busy on my last two days of spring break. And I don't love that. In a perfect world, I would have been able to sit in my pajamas both days. You posted something funny last night, which is a picture of your alarm clock wake up time today, which was 530. Every day, (laughs) every day that there's school, I get up at 530 and I hate it. You weren't ready for uh, spring break to be over. So (laughs) anyway. Uh, you had mentioned that you drugged me out this weekend to have fun. We did go to lunch, which is about all the fun I can stand. We were going to do something else after lunch, and then we just nixed it. But Yeah, uh, it was a little chilly. <laughs> yeah, I, I made you do something fun on spring break, even if you didn't want to, because yeah. I'm overly enthusiastic like that. I know. So what have you been up to? You've been listening to a new podcast, I hear. Yeah, you know, I'm always checking out new podcasts. Uh, I, I discovered one the other day that is, it's very new. I think they began in November, but it's such a cute premise. Uh, the name of the podcast is called You Might Hate This Book. And it is a podcast with two friends, Stephanie and Hannah, and they have very different reading tastes. And so the premise of the show is that they, each one will assign the other one a book to read. They think that their friend may not 
like, but that they like. And it made me think of us a little bit. I mean, our tastes overlap quite a bit, but there are definitely books that I like that you don't like and vice versa. Uh, And so I guess it it appealed to me in in that way. So just to give you an example, so their newest episode one of them has assigned the other one to read As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner, which, I mean, I have read Faulkner, not that particular one, but that's like some heavy stuff there. Yeah. yeah. And then the week before, the other friend <laughs> had assigned her friend to read The Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood, which is a rom-com. <laughs> so I just think that it's it's cute and funny and and they do go into the books but I wouldn't say there's a lot of spoilers in there. So I think you could easily listen to it even if you haven't read the book and not feel like it got spoiled for you cuz that's sometimes my complaint about book podcasts. Mm-hmm. If they're talking about a particular book is that if you haven't read the book and they're going into details it doesn't mean anything to you or you might get spoilers. Right. Uh, right. So this didn't do either of those things for me. Well, so. good. Good. Well, I started a new TV series. It's on uh, Apple TV. The Reluctant Traveler that has Eugene Levy. Yes. In it. I mean, we like him anyway. And we like to travel and like to watch shows about traveling. So it's pretty good. I, I enjoyed it. Okay, so let me ask you a little bit about the show, because I have not seen it yet. You have my interest peaked. So, Mm -hmm. okay, so for instance, some other travel shows have been like the Anthony Bourdain, where he is a very worldly traveler, right? Like he has been all over the globe. He's a very experienced traveler. He is open Mm -hmm. to trying all kinds of foods, all kinds of cultures, things like that. Mm-hmm. With the reluctant traveler, I'm guessing by the title that Eugene Levy is not that kind of traveler. You give the sense, and again, is this true to his personality? I don't know. I mean, he's an actor. So is it completely true to his personality? I have no idea because I don't know the real Eugene Levy. But I think he tends to be the type of traveler that would be perfectly happy to sit in the hotel and just eat and hang out in the hotel. And so the places that he's staying, these are not places that I could afford. I, I mean, like the place he stays in Utah is $3,000 a night. I'm Holy like, moly. Yeah, I'm like, I wouldn't pay $300 a night, <laughs> you know, unless it's like a full house and 18 people are staying in it. So places they have him staying are pretty opulent. But what they do is they, it's almost like it's like a bait and switch, you know, where they have him staying in these really nice places, but then they ask him to do things that maybe he wouldn't normally do. So like when he's in Finland, he has to lead a dog sled. And and so it's going across the ice, you know, like this frozen lake in Finland. He ends up enjoying it. One of the things that I really like about the show is that in some of the situations they have, or actually in, I think, all of the episodes that we've watched so far, and we've watched half of them, is they have him interacting with locals. And to the extent that he, like, goes to the locals' house and will eat a meal with them and meet their family and stuff like that. And that's kind of the part that I like the most because, you know, it's this juxtaposition of this actor who's staying in this opulent hotel or whatever, but then they sort of have him meet real people. And that's the part of traveling that I like. And I think, you know, from watching it, those are the most meaningful experiences to him. 
So kind of gives you a little bit of all the stuff, you know, it gives you a taste of, oh, wow, if I was rich, you know, I could look where you could stay. But it also gives you like, oh, well, this is what just regular people are like. So you've sold me on it. You and I have given some suggestions. Let's go ahead and talk to Lydia. She talks about the Appalachian Prison Book Project, but then she also talks to us about zombie movies. So if if reluctant traveling is not your jam, pay attention if zombies are because she covers quite a bit of ground. So let's talk to Lydia. We've got Lydia Welker here with us. She is the Digital Communications Coordinator for the Appalachian Prison Book Project. She's going to tell us all about what it is, what they do, and her role there. Lydia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. So I have been following you all on Instagram for quite a while, and I follow several other prison book projects as well. And I think I'm just like a little bit intrigued by these programs. So tell us a little bit about the Appalachian Prison Book Project and what you do. Sure. You know, it's funny you say you follow us on Instagram because that's one of the things I took over. When I started volunteering, I realized that there were 12 followers on Twitter and even fewer on Instagram. And I thought, here's a way I can help to try to share things about this project. So I'm glad you're following Instagram. That's Yes. So I can start by saying you've probably seen other prison book projects because there's a whole network of organizations like ours across the United States all with the same goal, sending books to people in prison. So APBP, we're a grassroots, all-volunteer nonprofit based in Morgantown, West Virginia. And our mission is to challenge mass incarceration by providing free books and educational opportunities to people incarcerated in prisons and jails across Appalachia. So we serve our six-state region, we call it. So that's Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, Kentucky, Ohio, and Tennessee. And since we were founded in 2004, we have mailed over 50,000 books to people in prison and jail. Oh, wow. That's amazing. We're pretty excited. So you started in 2004. Was there a reason why people there in Morgantown decided to start the program? Yeah. What was the catalyst? Yes, the catalyst. So we were founded by Dr. Katie Ryan, who is a professor in the English department at West Virginia University, which West Virginia people know is in Morgantown. So she taught a class on prison literature and her graduate students from the things they learned in that class decided to create this program. So it was started by this group of students and it has slowly grown into this functioning nonprofit that serves people all over the region. So why is there a a need for this. I mean, I've never set foot in a prison. So, you know, other than watching a documentary, I can imagine what it's like, but I really Mm -hmm. don't know what it's like. So talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. You know, the fact that you haven't set foot in a prison, which means you don't know anything about these issues, that's by design. It benefits the prison system for people to not know about what goes on inside behind these bars how little access there is to things like books, education, opportunities, things like that. So I kind of describe it as saying mass incarceration creates two worlds, people in prison 
and people outside of prison, which in the justice space is called people on the inside and people on the outside. I think people don't realize how big the scope of this problem is. Like if we start big picture, there are almost 2 million people incarcerated in the United States. We lock up more people per capita than any other nation. Incarceration rates are staggering. At its core, what we're doing is such a tiny piece of this big puzzle. But everyone at APBP is believes and is passionate about access to books, access to education, access to reading materials. We think these things are human rights and everyone deserves them, including people behind bars. So that's where we're coming from, what the core of this issue is. Well, it seems like it's, you know, it's really just a part of basic education. And if you're wanting to rehabilitate people, education is one of the key ways to do that. Absolutely. We think education is important for anyone to be able to access, whether they are going to be released in the next five years, whether they are serving life a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Everyone deserves access to education so they can be part of society, so they can build a better life for themselves, so they can engage with the world, all of these things. I think about somebody, you know, say somebody is in prison for life, Mm -hmm. just the idea of not having anything to sort of keep your mind busy sounds just kind of torturous to, to not have anything to sort of feed your brain for years and years and years. Yeah, absolutely. The books that you all get are sent to prisons in those States. Is that accurate? Yes, that's correct. So we get about 200 letters a week from people in jails and prisons across those six states. And then we respond by sending them a book that is as close of a match as possible to what they request. So if someone writes us a letter and asks for, I don't know, a mystery novel, we'll go to our shelves of donated books. We will find the mystery section. We'll pick out a mystery novel and we'll send it their way. You know, that has to be something just to even get mail, honestly has to be something exciting for prisoners. It is. You know, back to that idea of mass incarceration creating this division in society, mail call is a very big deal in the prison system. It is, mail is announced publicly usually, either like in large groups or in the halls. And so if someone is incarcerated and their name gets called for mail, that means someone on the outside cares about them. Someone on the outside knows about them and is sending them something. And that's really important. It's it's humanizing. It's reminding people of how <laughs> that they are cared for outside of the walls of this system. So, you know, I, when I mentioned earlier that I follow you all on Instagram, um, you're often posting requests that prisoners have that, you know, types of books that they would, would like to to receive. And a lot of times those books are things that are about skills or possible career paths like, you know, a construction manual or carpentry or things like that. So when they get these books, do those stay with them? Are they do they belong to that prisoner then? Or will they go to the library at the prison after the prisoner's done with them? Or does it depend? That is a great question and it does depend, but that's one of my favorite things to see. So we send this book to this person And we don't have control over what happens next. Some people keep it for themselves. But we often hear back from people saying, hey, thank you for this book. I read it. 
I shared it with everyone in my blog, and then I donated it to the library so that everyone can read it. So mm-hmm. if you, you know, if you donate a book, if you mail it to someone, it lives on through all these different people. So there is a lot of sharing these stories. Well, talk to us about your role as the digital communications coordinator, because as, as we chatted a little bit before we started recording and you do not live right now in Morgantown, West Virginia. So explain to us how the the process works and then how you sort of fit in as the as the digital communications coordinator, what your role is. I started volunteering with APBP in, I want to say, January 2016-ish, something around there, when I was a graduate student at WVU, just to volunteer in my community, to be around books, so many things. And like you all, I didn't have any knowledge or understanding of any of this. I did not know anything about the prison system or about sending books to people in prison. I started as a general volunteer working with letters, working with books. And then as I tend to do with these kinds of things, I'm looking around and see what else do they need help with? How else can I engage with this group, with this community? I noticed the lack of Twitter and Instagram accounts. I kind of helped do social media stuff there. I noticed their website was lackluster, so I helped build one. They needed someone to help manage their email account, and so I started doing that. And so I've been kind of building on this remote friendly stuff before I ever moved away. And so when I did move, I just continued doing that work and I still am. And then I created this term as a kind of an umbrella to cover the many things I do. So if anyone's interacting with our Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, checking out our website, emailing us, I'm that point, I'm on the other end. So (laughs) I'm kind of handling anything I can from here in Missouri to continue to help APBP. Well, and when people see those posts about books that inmates are looking for, anyone from anywhere can send that book. You don't have to necessarily live right there. Oh, that's right. We have people donate books to us from every state, from everywhere, and from other countries. It's really encouraging to see. So inmates send letters to you all, what's the nitty gritty of the process? You know, like a letter comes in and then what happens? Sure. So we get those 100, 200 letters a week and people write to us. They have to include their full name, their ID number, their mailing address, and then the types of books they want to read. We ask people to kind of list a couple of things that they'd be interested in because we're working off of book donations. So we might not have exactly what they want. But we do our best to get super close. So the first step is our volunteers will look through those letters and kind of make a note of what they're requesting. Then step two, we try to find a book that matches that request as close as possible. Because it's not just about giving people books. It's about getting them access to books they want to read. So we want to do our best to make those connections. And then step three is we call the wrapping stage. So they wrap the book in the envelope or the brown paper, whatever it is, and like make sure our address is right. And then we mail it off. So I know that sometimes prisons are a little finicky about what prisoners can read. What kind of limitations do you have in that capacity, in that respect? 
so that is one of the biggest challenges of sending books to people in prison and jails. You know, um, there's all of the book bans happening across the country right now in schools and in libraries. Still, the biggest book ban in the United States is in the prison system. So that's mm-hmm. something to keep in mind behind all of these conversations. So one of the biggest challenges is that the rules and regulations are different everywhere. There are different levels of prisons and jails, and they each have their own rules. So the federal government, which oversees federal prisons, has its own rules. Then each state has its own rules for its prisons. Then the states have different rules for their jails. And then at each prison or jail, each warden has their own rules. And it often comes down to the discretion of the prison employee working in the mailroom at the time. All of these come together to determine whether a book can be allowed to be sent to a person in prison. So there is a lot of moving pieces, and that's why our organization exists. You know, we and others like us, we have a good handle on these rules. We track them from state to state and from prison to prison. So we have a higher likelihood of getting books to people in those prisons and jails. In general, though, like there are some general rules you can follow for most prisons and jails, most facilities won't accept hardback books. And is that because they're worried that people are going to try to like smuggle things in the books or I've why is that? that an argument? You know, I've also heard that it can be used as a weapon or that it takes too much space. There are a lot of different reasons. Some hmm. places will, most places won't. We also don't send books with quote, you know, Graphic violence, nudity, or maps, which all of these are subjective, but violence because it could, I don't know, incite violence. Nudity, which might sound obvious, but it also includes like art and statues. Mm. And the the one guy Da Vinci drew with the different arms that I can never remember the name of, that's nudity, so that's not allowed. Um, really? Yeah. Huh. In most places. And then maps are a big one. So we can't send anything with a map, which again, on first glance, you're like, okay, Maybe a topographical map of a region where a prison is located is understandably not allowed. But we have had Lord of the Rings books rejected because there's a map of the fantasy world. (laughs) So again, these are not cut and dry is the challenge, right? And then um, there's also rules about the condition of the books themselves. So they have to be in good condition, which is subjective once again, but we usually ask for no rips or tears, no pencil or pen marks, no yellowed pages, no missing covers. So all of that is to say (laughs) the rules are super subjective and it takes a lot of practice to figure out what books are going to be allowed inside a prison or jail. So do you have like a database that lists like all the different prisons and their different rules and... I mean, yeah. that seems like that would be a lot to keep track of. Yeah, and that is what books to prisons organizations tend to do, whether it's an official database or more like a collection. So we have a list of prisons that will allow hardback books, which is just like five or six places. We have a list of what we call no-send prisons, which we don't ever send books to because they're never accepted. We have a list of places who accept this and that. So we do have a system to kind of keep track of all of these rules. You mentioned the no send prison. So if you send something, do they just send it back? Or how do you know that they don't accept it? 
most of the time we'll get a book sent back with a note from the mailroom official saying that it wasn't accepted. And sometimes they will include a reason, like a map for Lord of the Rings. Sometimes they won't, though, and we have to use our best judgment. Is it the book itself? Is it that the place won't accept books at all from us? Is it the individual who's not allowed to get books? We have to play a lot of guesswork, detective work to figure out Hmm. what the best next move is. I'm sure, I mean, you work with so many different prison systems, but what kind of reactions do you get from the prisons about your program? It can go either way, but for the most part, people, or I should say individuals who work at prisons, we've worked with some really enthusiastic people who want us to provide books to people in their prison or their jail. And that's always really encouraging. We want to send books to people. So if there's something a prison official can do, whether they are in charge of education there, whether they are the chaplain, whether they run the library, like if they have a connection in the prison and they want to help us get books inside, that's great. We love to hear it. Amy mentioned about, you know, the the types of books that are requested. So I, I guess job related, you know, learning a skill. I've also seen just from kind of glancing at some of your all's requests that you've put out on on social media about sort of legal law related. Uh, Are there other types of books that, that you all tend to see, you know, being really popular or being things that are requested a lot? Mm -hmm. So here is a fun fact for you. There is one book that is requested most frequently by people in prisons and jails across the whole country. Just one book. Can you guess? The Bible. I'm going to say a dictionary because I think I read it on your website. (laughs) You are right. It is the dictionary. (laughs) The humble paperback dictionary is the most requested book. The Bible is a good guess, but I think the reason that it's not the most requested book is that there are lots and lots of places already putting Bibles in prisons. Uh, But what people are looking for is the dictionary. So, Reference books like the dictionary are our most popular request. So dictionaries, the sources, almanacs, and like you say, law dictionaries, medical dictionaries, sources of information for people who don't have another way to access that information. But other than that, like y'all said, you know, how to books, how to knit a scarf, how to build a house, how to exercise, that kind of thing. And then educational books like starting a business or math or GED prep, those types of things. And then also fun books, mysteries, sci-fi novels, thrillers, fantasy, westerns are really popular. And then um, black literature, native literature, LGBTQ books, all of these things are pretty popular. You mentioned like book banning. And unfortunately, a lot of times the books that are being banned are the books that are about Black characters, I'm thinking of like The Bluest Eye, you know, Toni Morrison's books, LGBTQ books are often banned. So is that ever a challenge to to send books if people request them that tend to be books that are more likely to be banned? Yeah, there are some books like, like you say, by Black authors or, you know, books about the prison system itself, books critiquing incarceration, things like that, or books written by people who were formerly incarcerated, 
they can often get banned at will or um, at least rejected. And so based on our experience with that prisoner jail, we have to decide, you know, is it worth it to try to send it again and hope we get it past the person in the mailroom? Or is this place just not going to accept any books by Black authors from us and so we shouldn't waste our time? How do we navigate these different conversations and these relationships? What can we do to get these books to the people who want to read them? Because people do want to read them. People are always asking us for books in these areas. So I know that, you know, prisoners send you letters requesting books, but do they also send you other types of of letters too? What happens after they get the book? Do you get other kinds of, of mail from prisoners? People will write us book reviews, like thank you notes. They'll make thank you cards. People in prison don't have access to like what you're thinking of as craft supplies, but they're using what they have to create art. They're using scraps of paper. They're using the envelopes themselves and they're drawing and illustrating and coloring and making these beautiful pieces. We're actually working with WVU Press to publish a book on arts and letters from these things we've received. So to kind of tell that story and to celebrate making art in such a dark place. So when you say they make art out of the envelope, can you describe it a little bit? Mm-hmm. Not origami, if that's what you're thinking. Oh, yes. That's what I'm thinking. Are they making birds? What are they making out of the envelopes? <laughs> I think we have had a couple origami pieces folded up inside an envelope, but I mean like drawing on the envelopes. Themselves. Oh, okay. That's very cool. And so, so there's an upcoming book with some of that yeah. in it. Yeah, we're very excited. Um, in a couple of years, we're at the very early stages of the process. Like last month, we turned in the manuscript. So we have a bit of time to wait on it. But then people will get to see all the incredible artwork folks in prison have made and see some of the letters themselves, see what people are talking about and asking for. It's one of the most important ways to really understand the importance of building these connections between these groups. So you mentioned how many books since 2004? 50,000. 50,000 books. So, you know, that's one measure of success of your program. Are there other ways in which your organization measures success? That's interesting. You know, every time we get a book to someone who wants to read it is a good day, in my opinion. And when we're finally allowed to send books to a prisoner jail that wouldn't let us before, that's always a good thing. When people write back to us saying that they enjoyed the book we sent them or that they learned something new, those are some of my favorite messages. We also, if you look at the education side of what we do, more numbers are there, right, to measure success. How many people we've had attend our book clubs in prisons? How many people have attended a college course that we facilitated? How many people have signed up for our associate's degree program? All of these things are hinting at the growing success of what we're doing. It's really exciting. So you all have book clubs in some of the prisons? That piques my interest. Yes, that was one of the most rewarding experiences in my life. Not to sound too cheesy. (laughs) We have hosted book clubs in federal prisons in West Virginia for a few Uh years. Two men's groups and a women's group. All of those groups have discussed books, but they've also worked on writing projects and published with us some of the writing that they've done. So we have a couple of anthologies on our website that anyone can look at to see 
the things they've created in these book clubs. It's very cool. Huh. And so do the prisoners pick the book or was somebody from your group pick the book? We try to let the people in prison have as much agency as possible, which means they're picking the books. Now the challenge is they can't like Google summaries of books to try to decide what to pick. And we also can't just bring in bags of books. There are very strict rules about how many things we can bring in, what we can do. So what we did in the past, at least when I was helping facilitate these clubs, was have them pick like a category or genre, and then we'd find some books and print off descriptions of them and then share those just on paper. And together they would come up with the books they'd want to read and we'd get copies and we'd get started. I remember assuming before I started that they'd want to pick books about something other than prison to get their mind off of things. But really what they wanted to do is talk about these systems that they're trapped in, like understand these bigger contexts. And so we talked about Just Mercy by Brian Mm. Stevenson and The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. So at no point were we shying away from these hard conversations. And the things we learned is just really incredible to watch these conversations happen. You know, we've been talking about prison book projects, which is, you know, I mean, it's touching and heartwarming to get books into inmates' hands, but it's also, you know, it's a heavy topic. And so we want to switch gears just a little bit. Now, of course, this is a different situation than prison, but if you were stuck somewhere where you couldn't just, you know, download a book or go to the library, but you wanted to have three to five books with you, what books would you choose? If I was stuck somewhere, so I'm picturing like a cabin or a farmhouse in the woods in the middle of a winter storm, because that was my exact situation this Christmas. And (laughs) I didn't have power. So I was reading a lot of books. I would want to have a longer book that I haven't read before. And then a book that makes me think a lot and then something easy or fun. Okay. So for a longer book, I would want to bring Anna Karenina. Because I've never read it. And this, if I'm stuck somewhere, that's the best chance I have to dedicate time <laughs> to an 800-page Russian novel, right? <laughs> uh, I would also, I think, I think I'd bring Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston because mm. it's the kind of novel it takes me forever to read because I have to put it down every few pages and think about it. And why not think about it while looking out of this cabin window? on a picture-perfect winter landscape. And then for a fun book, I bring Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett oh, yeah. because it is delightful. Yep, that is a good one. I, I agree with all those. Those are all good choices. <laughs> she gives you thumbs up. Thumbs up. Now I'm curious uh, if you guys have thought about this. Like, what would your three books be? Oh. I would take Jane Eyre because that is my favorite book of all time. And every 10 years I read it. So I'm going to need to have it, especially I'm thinking if I'm there, if I'm stuck in this place, like on a deserted island, I'm going to, if I'm going to be there longer than 10 years from now, I'm going to need to take Jane Eyre. So that's, yeah, that's one. Probably if I was smart, I would take James Joyce's Ulysses. Oh God. Why would you torture yourself like that? I will tell you why, because I attempted to read that in college. 
But here's the thing. The only way I'm actually going to ever read that book is if I'm on a deserted island and I have nothing else to do. (laughs) That's the only way. Although if I was on an island, I'd be like, you know, I think it's time for me to put new thatch on this roof of this pathetic little shanty I've made for myself out of palm leaves or whatever. So even if I was there, I still probably wouldn't read it. Even though I'm not really a big poetry reader generally, I think I would take a book by Mary Oliver because even though I'm not a huge poetry reader, I do really like her poetry. I'm blanking on the name of it, but there is a book that a best of collection, although it's not called that. It's called something else. So maybe that. Also a book by Bill Bryson. He has a couple really long ones. Like one is like the history of everything or uh, the body. One of those longer ones because I find him hysterical. And so if I'm going to be on this desert island, I I want to laugh. So that's not three, but that's two. I'd have to think about it some more for the third. I love those. We would all <laughs> pick a really long book. At yes. Least. <laughs> yes. Well, in the poems, I think because... You know, they make you think, which is great, except for my daily life. I guess I don't want to spend that much time thinking. But if all I had to do was think, then I might like to read these poems over and over again. I'm not really a rereader either, but a poem, you know, you can see different things in it, you know, when you read it different times. So, and it's short, <laughs> it's not an Anna Karenina. I mean, it's, a poem, you can do a poem a day, you know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There's a certain date that you read. A particular book, April 6th, every year. What do you do on April 6th every year? That's funny. So it's not just a random day. That's my birthday. So (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny to imagine just picking a random date on a calendar. (laughs) Reread a book. So it's Hyperbole and a Half by Allie Broche. It's one of my favorite books. And it's a collection of I want to say essays, but it could also be a memoir. I'm not super sure what genre you consider it, but it's a graphic novel of sorts. So it's got her illustrations accompanying each story. So I consider hyperbole and a half like poetry sometimes, like you're saying, because I get something new every time I read it every year. I don't always read the whole book, sometimes just a story or two. Honestly, the whole book you can read in like three, three hours tops. It's a very fast read and it's fun. And why I like to read it on my birthday is that it, A, it reminds you of like the highs and lows of being human, but B, it helps you kind of celebrate the ridiculousness of being human and of growing up, which I think is like an important thing to remember around the time you're kind of transitioning to a new year of your life. There's also a specific essay I love. And if I don't have time to read the whole book, I'm going to read this one essay. It's about cake. It's about the four-year-old author is desperate to eat this cake that was created for her grandfather and her family hides it in the room from her. You feel for her. She like, she climbs into a window to eat that whole cake at once, the entire thing. (laughs) Quickly regrets the decision and it's hilarious. (laughs) I got to read the cake essay on my birthday. It's just, it's as important to me as actual cake on your birthday. (laughs) need to do that like say okay on my birthday and then pick pick something and reread it that's that's a great birthday tradition 
it's fun. And, you know, I, sometimes I read it a little early or a little late. This isn't a hard and fast rule, right? It's I'm reading some part of it around my birthday, but it is a nice <laughs> kind of, it's kind of a check-in with yourself. You're like, which essay resonates with me most this year? And what does that mean about how I'm experiencing life right now? It's It's just a great collection. I recommend it. Lydia, I'm looking through my Instagram because the grumpy face character in the hoodie from Hyperbole and a Half, I guess that's supposed to be the author. Yes. With the hoodie. One day I took a picture of my daughter. She had like a hoodie on and she had her face scrunched up in it. And I picture of her and I kept looking at it going, why does this seem so familiar? And then it finally dawned on me that it's the... It's that character from Hyperbole and a Half, and I put it on my Instagram. So I will, I will send that to you. So that. <laughs> that little cartoon, it just conveys so much emotion. Yeah, I know. Well, I feel like that every day. I feel like that's me every day of my life. Well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk with Lydia from Appalachian Prison Book Project about what she's reading. We are back with Lydia Welker from the Appalachian Prison Book Project, and we're going to talk a little bit about what we've all been reading because we're all book lovers here. So, Carrie, what what you got going on? So, there's a book I just finished recently. I love the cover of it. The cover, if you look at it, it's it's really creepy looking. The book is called She Is a Haunting by Trang Tan Tran. The cover is a picture of a woman and she has flowers coming out of her mouth, which doesn't sound creepy necessarily, but it's a totally creepy look to it. So I was really intrigued by the cover. And I've seen this book compared to Mexican Gothic, but it isn't anything like Mexican Gothic, except that both books are about strange and spooky houses. She is a Haunting is set in Vietnam. The protagonist is named Jade Nguyen, and she agrees to help her dad get a house ready. It's kind of going to be like an Airbnb or like a a small hotel type situation. The house has a special connection to Jade's family because her ancestors lived there and were servants for a French family who lived there when Vietnam was a colony. Vietnam was actually called French Indochina. And that was from the period of, it was from the 1800s to 1954. So Jade is a fairly typical American girl. She's angsty and she has a secret. She's bisexual. She doesn't want to be in Vietnam, but her dad has promised her tuition for college if she stays the summer and helps. So, you know, she doesn't want to be there. She's very unhappy. And then weird things start happening. It becomes pretty clear that this house, something's not right. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. Is Jade imagining things or is she dreaming or is there really a creepy woman in the kitchen eating what looks like worms? Uh, Who knows? Worms, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So while the book is definitely creepy and gothic, I think what's most interesting about it is that it has some pretty deep things to suggest about colonialism 
and what happens or can happen to the, you know, the people who kind of move away and then as generations become more Americanized. And so, you know, the book sort of asks this question, like, is the falling apart of Jade's family just a continuation of the falling apart of her family that began as a result of the French coming in and taking over another country? I mean, it's subtle. You know, that isn't a question that the author beats you over the head with, but it's definitely like an underlying current in the book. And, And I will say, like... In terms of sort of that idea of colonialism, it has that in common with Mexican Gothic. I would say that. Well, I think about the movie Get Out, you know, which is kind of a horror, but it also talks about some underlying social Mm -hmm. issues. And that's what your description made me think of a little bit. I recommend it. I mean, again, I wouldn't say... It's not in the vein of, oh, who's the author? Stephen Graham Jones. It's not overly violent. It's more like the threat of violence okay. is there. So if, you know, like if, if you don't like violence, there's not really that in this. But, you know, definitely weird, definitely creepy, definitely the idea of secrets and threat and suspense. And apparently worms in a way that I don't want to read about. I didn't realize <laughs> that I had such a, I mean, cause like, I'm, I'm not really scared by bugs. Like spiders don't, for the most part, don't really bother me. But I read a book recently that had a, a lot of worms and that grossed me out a lot. And so now I'm like, ah, no, I can't read anything that has worms in it. Well, it it might have been maggots. Maybe I got it wrong and it was maggots. But anyway, I mean, it was like. That's much worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not any better. Not much better. All right. Well, Lydia, you know, I hope you're not going to talk about horror because who knows what Amy will do. She's No, I like horror. I just don't like worms. No worms here. (laughs) I can't remember the last time I read a trilogy or even really a book with a sequel. But I am in the final book of a trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer. It's um, Annihilation. Have you guys? Oh, I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. I've not read it. So Annihilation was the first book. And then the third one here is Acceptance. It's very good. I don't know if I'd call it horror. I don't. I've been thinking about this. I wouldn't call it sci-fi because there's no, you know, button to push to make something happen. I wouldn't call it fantasy because there's no fantastical elements. But there is this unexplained phenomena that has really scary existential consequences. It's not really like anything I've read before, and I think that's why I like it so much. I'm a big fan of apocalyptic literature, post-apocalyptic literature. I mean, like everyone else, I fell in love with Station Eleven by Mm -hmm. Emily Uh Sengel, right? And I love Severance by Ling Ma, anything that is grappling with the survival of our species, existential um, questions. But in Annihilation, this phenomena happens. And they call it Area X. It's in Florida. And there's something weird happening. We don't know if it's alien. We don't know if it's nature fighting back. We don't know if it's God. But it's playing with the genetics of anything that goes into this area. So... The second book is kind of how the official response to this 
phenomena would go. And this third one here is tying together all these different narrators from the first two books, all these different themes. I'm really enjoying it so far. It's, it's creepy. There's a moment in the second book where the protagonist is watching video recordings of people from the first book who went inside this area where this weird stuff is happening. And the scene is the protagonist is watching the video where someone is sitting and staring at the camera because they're too scared to look away and see what's around them. And that Mm. vivid image will not leave my mind. It's so good. Yeah, I don't know if I'm explaining this well at all, but I'm really enjoying it. I remember now where I have seen this book. I saw it on a list. Maybe it was with the website Book Riot, but they had a list of what they called weird fiction. Yeah. And this This was on that. Because you're like what you're saying, it's not quite sci-fi. It's not quite fantasy. It's just really weird. Yeah. And, you know, it's a very at least as far as I would imagine, it's a very realistic response to something existential happening. There's like layers of government hiding it from the general population, which is absolutely exactly what would happen. So there's a lot of conspiracy, a little, I don't know, there's a lot of different ties. And they kind of made a movie based off this series. I say kind of because it's definitely taken liberties. It's all three books combined into one movie but it was with Natalie Portman I also recommend that if you guys like to watch movies it does really cool stuff with visuals and sound is it called Annihilation yep it's called Annihilation I can't 2015 2016 something like that I I feel like I may have seen that movie I don't know, Carrie, but this sounds like a book for you because you like like a book for me. Yeah, Yeah. she's a big uh, fan of strange fiction. I'm just a big fan of strange. You could have stopped it there. I'm a big fan of strange. (laughs) Anything weird, you like it. I love that. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. All right. Well, Amy, have you been reading about worms or strange stuff? Uh, no. Neither of those things. But the book I'm going to talk about is historical fiction. The book is called Codename Idleweiss by Stephanie Lansom. This just came out. And I'll admit that I became a little oversaturated with World War II historical fiction over the last few years. And so I usually find myself avoiding titles in that category. But when I read the blurb for Codename Idleweiss, I was intrigued. And that is because... It's not really set in the European theater in the Pacific, but it's set in Hollywood before the war begins in 1933. And the story focuses on the anti-Jewish sentiment that was becoming prevalent in the U.S. as Hitler became the chancellor in Germany. And there's a Jewish lawyer in the United States named Leon Lewis who believed that, that there were German operatives Um, trying to infiltrate Hollywood and specifically movie studios that were owned by Jewish men, such as Louis B. Mayer. And so the thought was, if the Germans could gain control over the movie studios, then they would have a megaphone for their anti-Semitic views that would make those views even more mainstream. Okay, wait, 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 wait. If the Jews could get control of Hollywood... No, no. So their thought was, was that Jewish people controlled Hollywood now. These German nationalist groups 
were trying to take over the studios. Okay. Um, so that they could get their right. anti-Semitic. Yes. Okay. okay. Yes. Sorry. I didn't okay. explain that well. Okay. Gotcha. So what happens is that Leon Lewis, he recruits two spies to infiltrate the nationalist elements of the German American community. And it was called the Friends of New Germany. So the first one, her name is Liesl Weiss, and she's a former secretary at MGM who has been laid off from her job. And so Leon Lewis gives her the code name Idleweiss, which and it and most of this book focuses on her character. The other spy is mysterious and we only know him as agent 13 and so these two amateur spies put themselves in danger in order to keep the u.s from the future fate of germany so the basis of this story uh is based in fact leon lewis was a real person and he did have female spies planted inside groups like the friends of new germany and other anti-semitic organizations around Los Angeles. And what I liked about this story is that it's totally different from the other kinds of World War II novels that I've read. It's set here in the United States, and it's actually a precursor to the war. And I guess I I hadn't ever really given much thought to what was going on here as far as um, anti-Semitism or preparations for World War II before Pearl Harbor when we actually got into the war. So it's sort of interesting to see because this is like, it's set like eight years prior. So that was kind of interesting. And I also enjoyed that you get a little glimpse of the golden age of Hollywood in this. What the studios, where they were filming movies, what all of that kind of looked like. And so um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, This is definitely a book that I think like my mother would really like. It's it's very clean, I guess you could say. There's not a lot of sex in it. There's a little bit of violence because we all are, are talking about Nazis. But, but <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot to be a little violent. But there's not a lot, you know. There's not a lot of cursing. But uh, it was just a different kind of World War II historical fiction. And so, if that appeals to you, um, I would recommend it. Again, the name is Code Name Idleweiss by Stephanie Lansom. All right. Well, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to put Lydia in the hot seat. We're back with Lydia Welker, the digital communications coordinator with Appalachian Prison Book Project. Are you ready for your questions, Lydia? I'm ready. You sent us a bunch of great possible suggestions, which I've never seen a list so thorough. I was like, yes, this is what I wish every person would send us. All right. Is that usually my answer to like, what's an interesting thing you could talk about would be APBP. And I was like, well, I can't do that this time. That's already covered. I got to help reflecting and figure out what else we can talk about. No, you came up with great stuff. A lot of times people are like, well, I like to read. And it's like, okay, but that's what we we're talking about that. Like you got to take books off the table. I think people have really interesting things that they're interested in. They just forget. They don't think that it would be interesting to other people. But I'm like, that's totally, it's the stuff you wouldn't think is interesting. Like I like socks with cuss words on them. Oh, I love that. Doesn't (laughs) sound very interesting, but it is. All right. Back to you. 
<laughs> Enough about me. Enough no, about me. Let's let's get back to you. All right, you are very interested in sharks. So, what started this fascination, and what is the coolest fact that you know about sharks? Oh, I'm so happy to have an opportunity to talk about sharks. <laughs> How often does that come up? So. I became interested in sharks when I was pretty young, and I don't remember what it is I was watching. It could have been like a Shark Week show or some kind of news report, but it was the first time I heard the description shark-infested waters, and I was so annoyed by that, even as a kid. It's it's the ocean. It's their house. (laughs) The waters are human-infested, and even as a kid, I was like, this is not right. Would you go into the jungle and say it's tiger-infested? No. That's the tiger's home. (laughs) In another life, I was a marine biologist studying sharks. Okay, so the coolest fact I know about sharks, it's simple. They're old. They're inconceivably old. Sharks have existed for millions of years. They have been around since Pangaea broke apart, like the supercontinent Pangaea. The earliest evidence we have of sharks dates back to like 420 million years ago. It's insane. So Sharks have survived five mass extinction events, including the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. We contextualize this this age, so 420-ish million years old. Saturn's rings are only 100 million years old. Wow. That does kind of put it in perspective. Mm -hmm. And the first ever tree, like trees as we know it today, appeared around 350 million years ago. So sharks are older than the rings of Saturn. Sharks are older than trees. I think that's amazing. That is pretty amazing. Like, I didn't have strong feelings about sharks, but you are, like, very pro-shark, and you do a nice job talking up the sharks. They're also extremely important for the ecosystem of the oceans themselves, so we got to protect sharks. But I have to ask you, what is your opinion of Sharknado? You know, the important stuff. (laughs) Okay. Um, I'll start by saying I've seen all of them. Because did you know there's not just one Sharknado movie? There's like six of them. I knew there was more than one. Six seems excessive. They're all bad. Okay, growing up, on the weekends, my mom and I would watch those like horrible sci-fi movies that's like the giant Komodo dragon versus... Godzilla or whatever. And Sharknado is very much along those lines where it's so ridiculous. It's funny. I mean, they're horrible (laughs) movies, but they're hilarious. Fair enough. Okay. You have seen lots of zombie movies. And so I want to know, is there one that sticks out to you that's your favorite? Ooh, I've always kind of liked zombie narratives because I think it ties into my, you know, my love for these apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic stories about human survival, blah, blah, blah. But something funny is that I got this urge in like February of 2020 to watch zombie movies. I was just in the mood. So I like scoured Netflix and Hulu and all all these things. And I watched like 30 movies in six weeks. And then a pandemic happened. And part of me was like, hmm, did I cause this? I asking the wrong question <laughs> at the wrong time but there are so many good zombie movies I mean the night of the living dead in 1968 that movie established the rules of the genre like everything you know about zombies 
was established in that movie. Like how the reanimated corpses that don't think and can't be injured and can only be killed with like a shot to the head. All of that was established there. But as far as movies I like, there's this one I ha- have to recommend. It's called Ravenous, which let's just pause and talk about how good of a name that is for a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> Ravenous. It's it's a French-Canadian movie, so it is in French. But um, they're doing some interesting stuff. The zombies have weird behaviors I haven't seen in any other adaptation. It's like they're showing signs of hoarding food and creating like a zombie religion. They're building the zombie culture. They're... <laughs> There's weird stuff happening mm-hmm. and like there's zombie comedy movies that are great like you've probably heard of Zombieland or Shaun of the Dead but there's one I <laughs> you guys it's called Anna and the Apocalypse it's like high school musical mixed with zombies mixed with a, a British Christmas movie it's a bunch Insane. of high school there's like a, someone who was a, dressed up as Santa Claus for kids he gets bit by a zombie, so we have zombie Santa walking around. I mean, it's just- oh my god! And it's a musical, so there's like songs and things. It's so much fun. Thanks to Lydia for being a guest. You were so fun to talk to about your zombies and your sharks, and about the Appalachian Prison Book Project. You can find Appalachian Prison Book Project on Instagram at Appalachian P B P. And at their website at AppalachianPrisonBookProject.org. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.